This song is more than just a song, it's a prayer. <clears throat> and it's a prayer that I've been singing myself since I was very little. Very simple prayer. Send love. Send power. Send grace. Now, when I was younger and things were not going so well for me or for my family, I would, as, as young men often do, I would sneak away at night. Now, my parents were the janitors of our church, and they had the, the keys to the church. So around 2 or 3 in the morning, I would sneak out of bed, and I would grab their keys, and I would walk over the few blocks from our apartment to the church and just kind of let myself in. And there in the middle of the night, it was just me and God. And I could sing the songs and pray the prayers that I was far too self-conscious and afraid to pray in public during the day. I was safe in the house of the Lord. And so I would sit at the piano in the dark sanctuary and I would sing this song and sing this song and pray this song, begging God to give me these things that I so desperately needed. Love, grace, power. I'd spend hours sometimes going over my prayers again and again and again in a million different ways until I was certain that God had heard me, that God knew that I needed the power, the love, and the grace to make things just go better tomorrow. Again and again, I would pray until I was convinced that God was definitely going to give me what I needed, what I had asked for, the ability to take my plans, put them into action, and to change the difficult situation of my life for the better. Of course, my plans rarely ever worked. And no matter how hard I prayed, no matter how much I begged God to give me the power, the strength to change the situation for myself and for my family, things just stayed the same. My best laid out, most reasonable, most logical plans failed again and again and again. And after a while, I started to wonder if God was even listening at all. I mean, didn't God care? Wasn't God on my side? Why wouldn't God give me what it was that I needed to make transformation happen in my life? Now, I mean, this is just one story, just one example, but oh boy, there are so many situations in life where we try to do this, don't you think? Situations where we see that something is wrong and we try to apply our own logic, our own reasoning, what we all too often call common sense as a way to fix the problem. We rely so fully and completely on our own ability to understand what is necessary in a situation that it never occurs to us that there might be another path, a better path. We see that transformation is necessary and we try to author it ourselves, by ourselves, using our own methodology. We pray to God to make our ideas stronger, more powerful, or better. And then we're utterly mystified when our plans don't work or when they even make things worse. Why? 
What we're praying for is logical. It makes perfect sense. Why doesn't God support it? Why doesn't God answer these prayers? This is the same sort of question, the same sort of mentality we find at the heart of today's Scripture passages. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I have to mention that the passage in Micah today is quite easily, hands down, my favorite text in the entire Bible. Micah 6, 1 through 8, is probably the scriptural equivalent of my theme song. And there are a lot of reasons to like this passage, not the least of which is the world-famous verse 8 itself. But what I love about it is that this whole passage together highlights the complete absurdity of what I was trying to do all those years ago, the complete lunacy of trying to pursue unity and reconciliation using human reason, human logic, and human methods. So what's interesting to me in this text is how Micah frames his commentary in this passage. Now, this isn't just a straightforward statement, but this is presented as sort of a courtroom argument between a really exasperated God and a people who are trying to figure out just what they need to do to get back into God's good graces again. Verses 1 to 5 are basically God saying to the people, look, look at all the things I've done for you, and you're still not listening to me? Why are you like this? Why do you turn away from justice, act unkindly, and boast of your own wisdom? I just don't get it, people. And in verses 6 to 7, we get the people's response. We see human reason applied to this divided relationship between God and God's people. Well, the law says sacrifices, they say. And that's what we've been doing to make God happy. Isn't, isn't that enough? Okay, well, well, maybe we should make more sacrifices. You can see the logic here, right? I mean, if one sacrifice is good, then surely more sacrifices is better, right? I mean, it's a logical jump from one burnt offering makes God happy to depopulating an entire ecosystem will make God even happier. I mean, the math checks out, right? All right, well, it, it, when this doesn't make sense, Micah decides to take the logic a little bit farther. All right, if rams aren't going to do it, if rivers of oil aren't going to do it, then maybe God wants something even more valuable than that. Maybe God wants me to sacrifice my kid. Someone so dear to my heart, flesh of my flesh, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Is that what it's going to take? You can almost hear the desperation, the pleading to know just what it's going to take, what degree we have to follow this plan in order to reconcile the people with God. The people keep extending their plans, pushing their reasoning forward to more and more logically extreme conclusions, and they can't figure out why it's not working. Well, it doesn't work. Because they're trying to do it on their own terms. They're trying to figure out reconciliation in their own way. Now, to the human mind, everything is a zero-sum game. If something is to be given, then something must be taken away. If God is displeased, then God must be then pleased with something of greater or equal value. More rams, children, what is big enough to balance that equation? And it's here that we get that one, the only, the famous Micah 6, verse 8. God responds in this moment by saying something that has nothing to do with logic, nothing to do at all with reason. It's got nothing to do with more or better or extension. There is no tactic or plan to it. God says, no, 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 forget about the sacrifices. Forget about the logic. 
Forget about the reason and all of your own personal wisdom. Do justice to each other. Love kindness and walk humbly with God. That's it. No qualifications, no changing to fit the circumstances, no what if the person we love is wrong in X, Y, or Z way. Just justice. Love, kindness, humility. Without precondition, without intent, without planning, scheming, careful implementation, or specific purpose. Just do that thing. And this is the same point we see Paul getting at in his letter to the Corinthians as well. Now, as Pastor Akiko told us about last week, Paul was writing this letter into a period of really sharp dispute amongst the believers in Corinth. The church there was fracturing, it was schisming, dividing between different individual leaders. And they were disregarding their unity in Christ so they could align themselves specifically with Apollos or Cephas or Paul or even Christ. Now, Paul had been their pastor, their teacher for these Corinthian believers for quite some time now. And he was continuing to reach out to them now, even in his absence from Corinth. His earlier letters, because this is not his first letter, his earlier letters have been lost to time, but we know that he's been writing to them for a while, and quite likely on this topic, church unity. Which is why, particularly those of us who are or have been teachers, can almost hear the exasperation in Paul's voice in last week's text, right? I mean, can you hear that? He's out of the room for five minutes, and everybody's already breaking into their little cliques and their groups, and they're arguing with each other. It's really not unlike being a high school teacher, right? So when we get to these two passages, last week's text and today's text, it's important for us to understand this as being really what it is, an exasperated teacher telling his students how crazy it is for them to be fighting amongst themselves when they should be working together unified. Of course, like the good teacher that he is, he then spends the next part, which is today's passage from Corinthians, telling them how to go about doing that. And he highlights that same human problem that was expressed in Micah as well. So while today's passage picks up right where last week's left off, but you may have already noticed something a little bit different. There's no longer any mention of Apollos or Cephas or any of the other factions or leaders in the Corinthian church. Mentioned them in a couple sentences last week, and now they're gone. Now he's suddenly talking about Jewish and Gentile or Greek believers instead. What? Well, in making this switch, he has identified, and I think quite correctly, that at the heart of all of this division, it really has nothing to do with the teachers that everyone is trying to follow. What's at the heart of these divisions are the backgrounds of the believers themselves and the way that they were trying to logically, rationally, humanly understand who God is. Now the church at that time was largely split between those two categories, Jewish believers and Gentile believers who come from the local Greek culture. Now the teachers, all of these teachers, are trying to speak into that environment and find ways to adapt the story of Jesus to fit their audience. Both the teachers and the congregants following them are trying to find ways to think about Christ that fit with who they already are, that, uh, that fit with what they already understand. They want to make Christ visible through the lens of their own logic, their own common sense, to make Christ theirs rather than making themselves Christ's. 
Unfortunately for them, Paul Sensei knows that Jesus just does not work like that. Now, to someone from the Jewish background in Corinth at the time, the idea, the very idea that the promised Messiah could die at all made no sense. To them, the Messiah was, by definition, a triumphant figure. Death, therefore, was a disproof of Christ's divinity, not the proof of it. Sethas, for example, may have been teaching from this exact point of view, trying to make Jesus fit this understanding of who and what the Messiah is supposed to be. Now, of course, we can't say for sure, but there were a lot of teachers in the early church around this time saying things that made it look like, well, Jesus didn't really die, or he was, he was only just mostly dead. And, and they didn't teach these things because they wanted to be divisive. They did it because they wanted Jesus to make sense on their terms, according to their own rules. They wanted to make the Savior fit the story. And of course, this isn't to say that the Greek side of things was any better. The Greeks, they thought that if God was truly perfect, God would never choose to become something as imperfect as a human. It would be completely illogical and make no sense for a perfectly good God to do something like that. To the Greek teachers at the time, Jesus becoming human was a contradiction. So many Greek teachers and believers thought that, probably as Apollos may have taught as well, that Jesus was something other than God. Maybe something made by God, but important certainly, but not God. And by making Jesus not God, then they're finding a way to make it make sense to them. They make the Savior fit the story. But the Savior doesn't fit our stories. A human Messiah, the Son of God who suffered and died for us and who calls us to follow His example of unity and love in the world, it makes no sense. We can't reason our way to unity under that banner. It defies logic. It defies reason. There's no way to make the mind accept something so clearly illogical. The mind just won't do it. So, how do we do it anyway? I mean, how do we pursue unity under a banner that defies reason? So this is going to sound weird, but a number of years ago, I found myself watching that weird, oddly interesting Tom Cruise movie uh, called The Last Samurai. Anybody here ever seen that one? Okay. Now, there, there is a lot to be said about how very, very problematic it is to have a story where Tom Cruise becomes totally the best samurai ever for some reason. But I found myself really taken with this one scene where his character is learning how to use katana properly for the first time. Now, he just keeps getting his butt kicked again and again and again and again until one of the other samurai tells him in very broken English that he needs to have no mind. Now, this concept, this idea of a space where there is no mind, where the body just act independently, this is actually a real thing. And it's not just something that was invented because it sounded really cool in a Japanese accent for this one movie. Now, in Japanese, in martial arts, they call this mushin. If you're a Dragon Ball fan, they call it mugate no gokui. In music, they call it being in the groove or in the pocket. And in sports, it's called being in the zone. Whatever you choose to call it, this state is often known as the best way to do a particular thing well. It's a state of being where you've taken your internal monologue, your sense of self, your logic, your reason, 
and you've removed them from the equation and brought yourself to a place where you just connect with the flow of thought and movement. No mind, just action. When Micah makes his courtroom mockery of human logic with respect to God, and when Paul points out that no matter what teacher you follow or what they might suggest, no human wisdom, no mind can match what God is putting out, I kind of think this is the sort of thing they're talking about. What we think of as wisdom and logic and reason, all these things fall short of the glory of God. And this contradictory wisdom is demonstrated perfectly in Christ. In Christ, God chose to become human, to illogically place perfection in imperfect humanity. Through Christ, God intentionally chooses to lift up the weak and the foolish and the oppressed and the downtrodden, people who it makes no sense for God to uplift and support. As Christ, God gave up God's Son, God's self, to the cross on our behalf, even though this action makes no sense for a perfect God to do. This is because God's wisdom isn't the same as ours. God's logic isn't logical. God's reasoning isn't rational. And God's sense, it's anything but common. God's wisdom makes fools of us all because God's wisdom isn't really wisdom at all. God's wisdom is love. And when we understand that, we come to realize that the task of building unity, becoming part of the unified, functioning, flowing body of Christ, it isn't about making sure we have the right teachers. It isn't about making sure that we build the right programs, have the right number of people attend service. It's not about having the right number of cookies for fellowship time. It's not about talking the right way or to the right people. It's not about marketing, music, staff selection, or voting. It's about mushing, removing ourselves from the equation, our wisdom, our logic, setting ourselves aside and letting God flow in us and through us. So unity begins when we put ourselves aside, put down our logic, surrender our common sense, and start doing the things of God rather than the business of the church. Unity begins when we take our selfish humanity out of the equation and let love back in. And when we do that, we can start to see the answer just as clearly as Micah did. What is God asking us to do? What is God asking us to be together as a church, as a people? Is God asking us to do the logical thing, the rational thing? Does God want us to build new buildings, add new programs? Does God want us down in the streets handing out Bibles and praising God's name? Does God want converts, statues a mile high, bigger praise bands, bigger Bible studies, thousands of rams, rivers of oil? No. What does the Lord require of you? As Pastor Akiko pointed out, unity in Christ isn't about agreeing with each other. It's not about figuring out how to think together, to believe together. It's not about reasoning out or thinking through what we need to do. What does the Lord require of you, of all of us? The Lord doesn't want a people unified in reason, united in belief. God wants a people united in action. Do justice actively, without hesitation. Love kindness, unashamedly, and without thought or reservation. Walk humbly with God without the distraction of your selfish human reasoning. 
We can't reason our way into unity. We can't plan our way into fellowship. There's no point trying to build or struggle or fight your way into a community. We can't do it our way. We can't set terms for God. Instead, we are called to set ourselves aside, set aside our own desires, our plans, and our goals, set aside our particular kingdoms and the life and ministry of the church, and stop thinking about what we personally want to do. Mushin nishiro, let's not follow Cephas or Apollos. Don't try to make the Savior fit your own story. Let's take ourselves out of it. Remember that the Lord does not ask us to plan or to scheme. The Lord doesn't require us to construct community, build unity, or manufacture fellowship. The Lord requires us to set our eyes on a God who asks for justice, love, kindness, and humility. And if we can all start there, we find ourselves united together doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God together. Amen. Please don't.